Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, as I am joined alongside, as I am every week, by media executive Grail Hallett and OTB producer Sam Griswold. This week, our guest on OTB is that kick-ass soccer stats guy, Paul Carr. He's a numbers man, something no one has ever called me, but uh, he's got all these really cool statistics that he breaks down uh, with soccer stuff and all the different machinations and ramifications of numbers on this game that we love. I met Paul when I was over at ESPN, and what a find. Uh, Always thought he was underutilized over there. Gee, what are the odds? But now Paul is the director of content for True Media Sports and um, soccer researcher for CBS and Fox. But today we have him, uh, which is great because he always gives us some uh, so good insight. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, you're you're on with the guys, Sam and and Grail. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, so, before we get started, what are we over today on Over the Ball, Grail? Yeah, so I'm over the. Uh, there's been this anti-Semitic song being sung by Spurs supporters going back to the '70s that I actually was well aware of as a kid growing up in England. Yeah, still going up, still very controversial. It, it seems like finally the club is deciding to address this because it's offending so many people. And just so you know, historically, Spurs had a lot of Jewish supporters, and um, it's it's just a very hateful and hurtful. What's the, what's so, the word? It's a song. Well, the, and the word that they use is yid, which is a very de- derogatory term. And, we're, all adults. Uh, we, we're adults here. We can discuss these. Yeah, uh, I said no, no, but I'm just saying. So the whole song is around the uh, the term yid, which is, a, again, a very hurtful term for Jewish people. And it's sung largely by non-Jews, which makes it even more offensive. So anyway, finally, the club has come to their senses and they're trying to educate the supporters about why this is so offensive. So who hopefully owns, who we will get rid of it. Who owns Tottenham? Is it uh, Daniel Daniel Levy, who happens to be Jewish? Jewish, so, exactly. It's an yeah. interesting role. So let me ask you this, though, Grail, because um, I try to talk to my daughter about this uh, as I try to explain uh, a Polish joke that I had told a Polish guy, and she had no concept of what ethnic humor was. Um, you know that you know it's the guy was asking me about Polish jokes, and he was Polish, so and she was just offended by the whole thing. And I'm like, well, I guess you're you're right, but this is sort of interesting. In the 70s, were most of the fans Jewish? So they were singing Yids, but they were singing about themselves. No, it's almost a lot of the supporters at Spurs were Jewish. They're now only 5% of the whole supporter base. So it's it's totally shifted. But it was always it was always controversial. My point is back in the early 70s, when I lived there, people had problems with it. And it still has gone on and on and on. And uh, it bubbled up again, you know, a few weeks ago because they were chanting it. And so, so in any case, the good news is that it seems like they're finally addressing it. And hopefully we can get this out of their lexicon of chants, which is some very good chants. Yeah. All right. Sam, what, what are you over? What is it a social justice question? <laughs> no, this is, this is slightly uh, less important, I would say. But uh, I'm interested uh, this week in um, all these documentaries that are happening around teams and basically this transition from what I would say sports clubs to you know content producers that a lot of these top clubs 
are going through. Uh, most immediately, I'm reacting to an article I read uh, by Rory Smith in the Times a couple of weeks ago about Ryan Reynolds and whoever that other guy is from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia buying Wrexham, I think, and how yeah. you know their plan is essentially to, to turn the whole experience into a documentary. Uh, and it's just really strange to me. You know, my question to you guys is, A, do you actually like any of these documentaries? Because I don't. Uh, and no. B, you know, isn't it a little weird that these people are outsiders coming in and sort of telling these club stories? I, I don't know. I just find it all very odd. Well, it's kind of the hard knocks mentality, right? That started years ago when they would go with NFL teams and NHL teams and whatever. And that whole thing about kind of embedding themselves in it which some people have an appetite for. I really don't. But th this thing, Sam, the Ryan Reynolds thing is just, to me, is so transparent in terms of the intentions. It has nothing to do about whether or not they like Rex MFC. They just want a content platform. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, guys are just, uh, you know, they think it's going to be fun. And so yeah. um, put some money into those teams. A lot of Americans are buying teams over there. I think, uh, I don't think it does soccer any harm i think it's good to have these high profile people it's just annoying when they're not soccer fans and they're not doing it for the passion they're doing it for like hey man this is a cool fun project uh, let's get going in there so let's uh, let's get our guy in here paul carr um this is not stats related but you got any comments on what the these two knuckleheads are over today and over the ball well, i just think for the as far as the clubs go you know there's there's some good stuff out there and you see things like uh, the what Netflix has done with their F1 series and how that's you know up popularity. Yeah. You can see in the ESPN ratings, uh, the numbers are up. I think they had the, the F1 race this weekend was their highest rated thing that wasn't football all weekend. So I mean, it works in some capacities. And I guess I don't mind as long as kind of to Sam's point, as long as you don't lose the soul of the club, mm -hmm. you know, if you're you know telling the, I don't know Rexham's story historically, but as long as you yeah. kind of keep some of that integrity and don't just completely overhaul it, um, I don't have too much of a problem with it. You even see it a little in the U.S. Some of the small, uh, like uh, what is it, Madison? Um, is it Asbury? I think you know they make jerseys and do fun things and have a lot of fun, kind of in the the social realm. Uh, but they still kind of keep that attitude, and you know they obviously don't have the history that these English clubs do. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think it. I think it goes to kind of what you're all saying. What are they doing with it? How are they addressing it? Are they you know ignoring the past? Those are the things I don't like. Um, other than that, you know, I, I just feel like it's inevitable whether we like it or not hey guys i think paul just said he didn't know a lot about a certain subject which is the first time <laughs> i've ever heard that from him so uh no there yeah so, be stats to back it up uh, i'm not i'm not up on my wrexham history and i apologize um <laughs> uh, wrexham damn near killed him i don't know if you guys know that joke one of my days yeah. <laughs> um all right so paul you, you tweeted out yeah. something yesterday what we have six americans were playing in champions league yesterday um yeah. is that's a record it was six startings the first day on which we've had six start. And then Dest also came off the bench for Barcelona. So it was the first day on which seven played in Champions League. And in some ways, that's just kind of a fluke of scheduling. Uh, but, you know, most seasons, I think the record for players in a season is nine set last year. So it's a fluke of scheduling, but it's also a trend. You know, there's a few couple more that could play today or some of them are injured. So like Reyna is not going to play. So yeah, it's just this continual. We talked this back at the ESPN days when you're getting just two and three at a time and Pulisic mm -hmm. was starting to play for Dortmund and stuff. Uh, it just keeps going. And obviously it's just a good sign. And some of these guys, you know, PFOC wasn't on the last World Cup qualifying roster. Brooks wasn't on the last World Cup qualifying roster. I mean, I think as recent as five years ago, maybe less, you got a Champions League guy that doesn't make the World Cup qualifying roster and you'd just be stunned. And now it's Heard of. almost yeah. commonplace and that's all a good thing. Yeah, it's good, as, uh, you know, in regard to um, to competition and high, 
profile games. It's wonderful and the experience these guys are getting. And I think obviously it showed in the last U.S. outing. I mean, these guys are, you know, 21, 22 years old, and yet they're seasoned already and, and seasoned overseas with some big, big teams. So, uh, so good stuff. And then you had um, one, well, I guess, Grail, you want to ask the question about the keepers? Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, uh, thanks for joining us. We love having you on. So yeah, we've been uh, banding about the whole Zach Stefan, Matt Turner competition, and I've been just uh, waiting for you to come on to see if the stats back up Burhalter's decision beyond just his loyalty to Zach Stefan to go with him. Yeah, I think broadly they do back up the general perception that people have. I think you know the, the general thing everyone says is Turner's a better shot stopper than Stefan, and Stefan is better with his feet, which is broadly speaking why Burhalter prefers seems to prefer him at least. And the numbers do back that up. If we look at we call goals prevented, which is basically uh, you know if a shot's going in the top right corner. You know, no keepers, but keepers rarely going to save that. That's worth almost a whole goal just from a data standpoint. Uh, so if a keeper can save that, he saves like 0.9 of a goal or more than that. Uh, so you add all that up over the course of the season, what you save, what you don't save. And over the last couple of years, Turner saves about a third of a goal per game uh, between his club and country games. And Stefan's about a tenth of a goal per game. So from a shot stopping standpoint, Turner seems to be better in MLS over the last, I think since 2018, when he became a starter, he saved about 10 more goals than any other keeper. So Turner is really fairly clearly. And I think this is what the eye test tells us. He's, he's a better shot stopper. Uh, so the question then is, you know, is Stefan better with his feet? This is a little tougher to tease out because it's very, you know, dependent on style. Stefan's doing a lot different things with man city say, than he would be with the U S and, you know, Turner might be asked to be different, do different things in new England. Maybe he's just not asked to play with his feet. Uh, but we can just look at the broad numbers. And over the last couple of years, just let's look at pass completion percentage. So Stefan's completed 77% of his passes that were 20 plus yards uh, and a 60% for Turner. If you just look at forward passes, then of 20 plus yards, Stefan's at 58% Turner's at 48%. So you know, it's, it's basically from Burhalter's standpoint, I think about, you know, keeping possession or getting that counterattack going or moving the ball up the field more quickly. And the numbers suggest that Stefan is better at that. Again, there's a lot of underlying factors and things, but yeah. broadly speaking, his passes get to his teammates more is kind of the very simple way of saying yeah, it. Yeah, and which is more important, I guess, is what it comes right. down to. Like, could could Matt Turner, would Matt Turner have had a better chance of saving that uh, Antonio Thunderbolt right. in the game against Jamaica. And, yeah. and based on your stats, he might have. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just personally, I kind of feel like in games where you're going to have a lot of possession, like most of the CONCACAF games for the U.S., mm -hmm. I kind of am inclined to put a shot stopper in there just because you're going to have so much of the ball, those quick counters or quick restarts are less important. Um, I'd be kind of inclined to put Turner, but I don't pretend to have the you know goalkeeping insights or knowledge of, of a coaching staff anywhere. That's just kind yeah, of my, my general but thought. But if we're playing money ball here, which is you know what you do with your stats mm -hmm. and things, that's those are two interesting sets of stats where mm -hmm. you have to compare them and say, what is it? Because yeah, you might lose distribution coming out of the back once or twice more per game, but if he did stop that thunderbolt of a shot, right. Geez, how do you how do you you know yeah. cancel out? So it's a it's a coaching call. It really is. Yep. Also, the Zach Turner's got this big physical presence, you know, with with crosses and stuff. I, you know, he's a big man, and yeah, um, he, he looks the part a little bit more. 
you know, yeah. just, just big, tall, strong, uh, you know, Turner, I don't know, a little bit more slight. Uh, yeah, he's more, he's, got the, he's more in the Ochoa, like, you know, a little bit, yeah. Little nimble, you know, quick, you know, quick hands, quick feet. But, um, yeah. but I, you know, I tell you one thing, looking at Matt Turner and how he's progressed as a keeper, um, I guarantee you he's working hard on his feet now because I don't think they play out of the back. At, yeah, not as much. Revolution as they do, you know, with Man City. The other thing is, though, Paul, with those stats is that, you know, not as many shots uh, were that that he faced Zach because he just didn't have the numbers because he mm-hmm. wasn't getting the time. So I, you know, I actually thought it would have been a, I thought it was Turner. It was Turner's to beat and and he surprised all of us, but Berhalter's done that before. So uh, yeah. do you have a question for Paul? Yeah, Paul, great to see you again. Uh, I'm curious if there are any metrics out there that, kind of speak to the difference between club play and international play. Uh, this is just from my own perspective, watching mm-hmm. the CONCACAF qualifiers, uh, you know, this past week, it just seems so much more kind of hectic and fast paced. Um, and, and I'm wondering if there's actually anything behind that. Yeah. I haven't dived into it explicitly. I think uh, broadly speaking, I remember looking at this might've been for the 18 world cup. I can't remember, but yeah, but broadly speaking, the, it matches the eye test in the sense that the better clubs are, you know, we'll just say UEFA champions league teams are better than world cup teams on the whole. Uh, you know, if you're just looking at things like percentage of passes completed, uh, how long your sequences are and your possessions are just mean how many passes you're stringing together, things like that, uh, generally taking better shots, etc. So broadly speaking, those, your good clubs are better than your good countries. And I, I think we see that, you know, the group stage of a lot of these tournaments tends to be kind of, uh, choppy and ugly because you're just trying to advance sometimes. And that's part of it too. Uh, and I think it's just, I mean, to me, it makes sense. It's just familiarity. You know, you play for man city, you are with those guys for 30, whatever you have 38 games and yeah. uh, two thirds of the seat, two thirds of a calendar year. And then you're going to pull all these guys together from different clubs and countries for one national team. You got a week or two of practice and then there's a world cup or qualifiers or whatever. So I think it's just familiarity that makes it a, a more pleasing game to the eye and all those kind of fluidity type of numbers will tend to back that up. That clubs are better than country from a, from that standpoint. Yeah. And it, it speaks to, you know, what a coach has to deal with when he's got players coming in oh, for yeah, it's tough. and you have to figure out who's where that's why we say like, you know, the, the social media stuff, which who are the best 11 players? It's like, that's only one component to what you're trying to pick as a, as a coach, where you're trying to pick sort of team chemistry that you have to put together in a week and and the roles that people play. And and one thing Berhalt has done is, you know, brought people in who are playing different positions for the national team than they are for their, for their Mm -hmm. team. So, uh, yeah, it goes back to, I mean, just think of the classic English problem where they could never get Gerard and Lampard to play together. You know, those were mm-hmm. two of their, I don't know what, five best players for sure on the team. Yeah. And, but they may not have been two of the five best players in the 11, if, if you know what I mean. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. I, I don't envy the challenge that international coaches have of trying to put all these pieces together uh, super fast and, and make them, you know, people expect them to be at the top of their game uh, three days after they all got together, stuff like that. Well, I think it's a great problem for the United States to have. It's almost mm-hmm. like players in the Champions League. You know, it's, Sam, we had talked about this before. Right? I used to watch Italy about the players who they didn't take, and you'd be like, or who was sitting on the bench, and you'd be like, oh my God, yeah. they're just one of those strikers, you know, in the United States. So now we do have a little bit of a, a depth. Uh, I can't say problem, but, it, you know, yeah, that's one of the things you have to deal with is you've got a few players in each position and who fits in uh, with most. Let's let's move on to VAR. Um, do you have any stats on VAR? Because it seems like a lot of the early hubbub um, with the, you know, it was like uh, 
like smokers in New York bars. It's, uh, they complained early and, and often, but now uh, it seems to have gone away. Is that true? People, uh, not it, you know, it's tough. It's a tough thing to quantify. I think generally what you're saying is correct. You just kind of get used to it. Um, you know, looking at like the Premier League, for example, they're actually on pace for a few more of our decisions this year than last year. So it's not a quantity thing. I think it's really just a combination of getting used to it and really updating the rules, whether it's the, you know, the IFAB rules or the VAR uh, execution rules to better fit together. You know, we've seen things like tweaking exactly what is a handball and what can be reviewed and things like that. And I think uh, there's a lot of little things like that that were not thought all the way through. And it's sometimes hard to think through those things until it's actually happening. And you get these weird situations like, oh, yeah, that happens, you know, once a season or something like that. So I think they've done a decent job of, of tweaking those rules and fine tuning things. And people just learn how to use VAR better. Uh, officials learn how to use it better, when to go to the monitor, when to not, what's reviewable, all these things. So I think it's just kind of a smoothing out and ironing out of the process that was pretty messy and maybe got rushed a little bit at the beginning, but uh, yeah, referees are learning how to use it better. Fans are getting used to it. I think it's all those things. I don't think the numbers are going to change all that much. It's just, everything's better executed. Yeah. You know, um, you you talk about like the most childish behavior you would ever see a soccer player is when a penalty kick is called. And it's always bothered me because people get right in the face of the referee. They surround them. And all the years I played ball, never saw a reversal of a call. So, you know what? You guys are right. You, you presented an <laughs> case here. I'm going to, like, pick up the ball back in the halfway. So it's interesting that the referees now, they, I've watched them. They just kind of look at the players, and they're like, we're reviewing it. We're, we're going. It's going to be looked at. It's being looked at. And it sort of takes a lot of the heat out of that decision because you got somebody backing you up. Yep. Yeah, I liked it. It was one of the MLS playoff games last night. Yeah, the referee, it's just like, or maybe it was Champions League yesterday. Some game I was watching yesterday, but the referee is just like, hang on, wait. And, and I think it's probably nice for him a little bit. He can kind of shift that blame or something. You know, don't yell yeah. at me. Up I'm going to make that decision at this point. Up, yeah. yes, it's, it's a lot real. better than mass confrontation. Yeah, Paul, every team is awash in data. And we can yeah. debate whether or not at some point, you know, data becomes too much or whatever. But you know, the obvious starting point was penalty kicks, where it's just v- very easy to look at tendencies of the takers versus the mm-hmm. keepers, and you got video and all that. I'm just wondering, what other broad trends have emerged that have actually affected or had an impact on the match strategy itself? I think the biggest thing over the last decade, and you see this, I've seen this in every league that I've looked at the numbers for, is that teams are taking better shots. And I think part of this is the development of expected goals models models or shot quality models. And in some ways these aren't new, you know, you've probably seen old pictures or, you know, practices where coaches are like drawing rings around, you know, shoot from here, don't shoot from here, that sort of thing. And now we just have ways to back that up with data and you can see how much better is a shot from whatever, 12 yards out in the middle of the box, than 25 yards out outside the box. Even if you're unmarked, you know, this shot goes in whatever, 25% of the time, the long shot goes in 4% of the time. Uh, so I, I, we've seen, I'll take MLS, for example. It's like 10 years ago, the average shot was scored about 9% of the time. 56% of shots were inside the box and the average shot distance was a little under 20 yards. This season, the average shot was scored over 11% of the time. So two percentage points higher. Uh, 63% of the shots were inside the box, seven percentage points higher. And the average shot was just over 18 yards. So about a yard and a half, two yards shorter. So I think just, this just speaks to general strategy of 
teams, players, coaches looking for better shots, not settling for that 25 yard one as often. Um, and part of it, I think, is just the evolution of the game. You know, Barcelona is there at their peak about 10 years ago, and that tiki-taka style has kind of trickled down to lots of ways. So even if people weren't looking at the numbers, they see Barcelona tapping in dozens of shots a season, and you kind of try to play that way. So I think oh, broadly that's that's one of the bigger transformations over the last decade. Well, so just as an aside to that, Paul, I don't know if you guys remember, but a few years ago, Vincent Company, the former captain of Man City, scored an amazing goal from about 30 yards out. Yeah, yeah. And the funniest thing about it was that Sergio Aguero, they had footage of him yelling mm-hmm. at him not to take the shot and Pep on the touchline saying, do not take the shot. Yeah. So it kind of goes to your point where it's like you do not want Vincent Company generally taking a shot from yeah. 30 yards. And I do think, you know, there is value in those shots beyond it is scored, you know, 2% of the time, because yeah. if you let's, let's go to extreme. Let's say a team never takes those shots. It's kind of like, it'd be like in the NBA, if a team never took a three pointer, well, you stop guarding the three point line and you can jam the middle and, and clog up what everything else you're trying to do. If you never take those shots from outside the box, then, you know, teams can defend a little bit better. So that's not to say you should stop taking them entirely, but there is a judicious uh, in between as far as how many, how often you fire from long range. Now, those are big words to my, my broadcast. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, Kevin. Um, but you know, it's, I tell you something, one of the things I loved about soccer that was attracted to it, it was, it didn't have all the stats that baseball had, you know, just, you know, these numbers guys. It's like, come on, it's a bunch of athletes out there. It's like more athletic, less yeah. stuff. But I got to say with soccer, this stuff has really, I mean, this is an American thing, isn't it? We've really brought stats. It's kind of, yeah money ball thing and, and they're really interesting and you know even like where guys get in the red zone or when you're in the box uh, how often you're there and, and it's sort yeah. of you know all these trends so it's uh, it's it's changed the way the world's looked at the game and i think you know the best numbers are generally quantifying things that people will say and analysts will say you know if uh all the team shots are from outside the box from long range you'll you'll hear an analyst say look they're not getting any good shots they don't, they don't have the numbers to back it up, but they just know from watching. Or, uh, you know, you don't need numbers to tell you that Xavi is a really good passer, but the numbers will back that up and say he completed whatever percent of his passes uh, and things like that. So, so I think the best ones are just putting numbers to the way that people talk, you know, whether it's saying people need to take better shots, whether it's this guy is terrible in the air and you can see that he doesn't win aerial duels, uh, things like that. So those are the best ones. Is, and it's just a way of, uh, yeah, putting some numbers behind it. Uh, Dean Oliver's a great basketball statistician, kind of the godfather of basketball stats, likes to say, you know, your eyes can watch a game and probably watch them better than the numbers, but the numbers can watch every game. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. I don't have time to watch every Champions League group stage game, especially when they're all simultaneous, but I can look at numbers and get a good sense, not a perfect sense, but a good sense of what the team is doing uh, without having to watch, you know, 16 games every week. They used to say that about Larry Bird, like watch him yeah. off off, you know, other things that you can't even quantify with statistics, you know, so yep. there's a lot to, to read into it. Sam? Yeah, Paul, going back to the CONCACAF games again, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was really struck by, again, not only the, the style of the difference in the style of play, but also the difference in the refereeing and the leniency. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there are any metrics or, you know, numbers out there that are looking at refereeing performance and how that may impact uh, a game. Yeah, and you'll definitely see teams, I mean, even just at the basic level, and I think it tends to start there at least. How many fouls is it giving out? How many cards is it giving out? Uh, okay. You know, maybe you're looking at when in the game or where on the field some of those things are happening. Uh, it's like kind of similar to eye gouges. 
Yeah. yeah, who misses eye gouges? And can we can we take advantage of that? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like baseball. You know, you, you see, you know, teams have heat maps of umpires where they do and don't call strikes. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, they're trying. Teams are trying to do that. You know, th- again, at the very basics, I think that's been there for a little bit. Just how often is he calling fouls? What can you get away with? Uh, things like that. And and now teams just that they have more granular data can get a little bit deeper as far as okay, he really doesn't call fouls in this part of the field or at this time of the game. And I think that's the those are the first steps at least, and those are the easiest things. Uh, going beyond that, I think might be a little bit challenging. But I'm sure teams are working on it. Some probably have figured stuff out already. But I think those are things that uh, kind of top clubs are doing right now just to try to get that small edge or at least know what you're getting into going into a game you know and, and speaking of the eye gouge of brendan aronson uh, he was on yesterday he got interviewed and you could <laughs> tell his father was a coach because just the way he spoke he spoke like a coach you know about the what the game you know entailed and, and all that so let me ask you this with data one thing where i think it would almost overwhelm you is taking pks how much mm-hmm. data do you think a goalkeeper gets with penalties well, because it's a big part of the game, but like, boy, yeah. you put it, you know, I, I think played- he gets, yeah. go ahead, Paul. I was just yeah. say, I think he gets as much as he wants. You know, you'll hear interviews with some keepers. I think Peter Schmeichel may have said it in the Champions League broadcast. He said he didn't want to know anything mm-hmm. when he was a keeper. Um, and he just wanted to kind of react and go on instinct. And I'm not going to argue with Peter Schmeichel. He's one of the greatest keepers we've seen. Uh, but yeah, I think they can have as much as they want. You can track penalties, you know, just about any competition that, these guys, these current guys have played, uh, you know, sometimes even in you know training sessions, if they used to be on the team or you get Intel from, you know, someone who used to be on that team, something like that. So really they can just have as much as they want. Uh, I think the most common refrain I hear when listening to keepers is they want at least a general sense, you know, they want to know, okay, this guy goes this direction, whatever, 70, 70% of the time. Right. And then they want to react, you know, cause there is something definitely to, Whatever, reading a guy's hips, reading his run-up, reading the way his foot opens up or doesn't open up. Uh, I think there's some, definitely something to that. And there's also something to getting an advantage and just you know moving a little bit early, maybe to get that extra half step in that direction. So I think it's pretty subjective by keeper. It may also depend on you know, how familiar are, are you with some of these guys. You know, if it's MLS and you've faced them three times this year, that may change the way things happen. Yeah, that's uh, things, why you go like to, like to a Schmeichel because you know I played in a game once where. Uh, you know, it was a sort of a regional Olympic development team. And the two teammates, our goalkeeper and the guy taking the penalty kick were teammates in their hometown league and they're, mm. they're in, in college, actually. And so Maybe. the one guy tells him what side he's going to kick it. And then he thinks, well, he knows I go to my right. right. So he's going to go to my well, wait, but he knows I know. So I'm going to go to my left. Well, we had a beer afterwards and it was hysterical because it was like a game of Jeopardy. Nobody knew yeah. anything at the end of the day. Yeah. Like you knew each other, you knew everybody's tendencies, but it didn't matter because it could always yep. change. It's live. And I, and I think you know, there can be differences in one-offs and shootouts. You know, you'll see mm-hmm. some keepers dive. Like I think Achoa last night dove left for the first four or something and then dove right. Maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe it's a strategy. But when you have you know all that instant feedback for both takers and keepers, I think that could even change things when you're doing a shootout instead of just a one-off PK in a game. So who was it? Watford. The guy missed two in a row. He had to take two. He just missed both. Yep. Uh, the save fault. So, uh, um, so Grail, you have a question? Yeah, yeah, Paul. So we're in the midst of MLS playoffs, and uh, the Revolution, New England Revolution, obviously had a record-setting season, broke the points record. Just curious if there's any correlation between the winners of the Supporter Shield and then ultimately how they go on and perform in the playoffs or win the yeah. uh, win MLS I mean, Cup. I think the short answer is sort of. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we've had 25 MLS Cups, uh, eight Shield winners made the final, and seven of them won. So you know, so you're looking at between one out of three and one out of four. And I, you know, that's basically what the math kind of works out to, you know, if you're, cause you're playing, uh, what, at least three rounds of playoffs, you have a, you know, you're the one seed, so you have a better than 50% chance, but you know, even if you, let's say you have an 80% chance to get through three rounds and get to MLS cup, that's still only about 50, 50 of you getting there. And then you have to win it. Where, so you're looking at, you know, one out of four or one out of three shot. Uh, and that's kind of what the, the, if you look at the betting odds, for example, new England was three to one to win MLS cup. So expected to win one out of four times before, uh, or five thirty eights projections have New England at 21%. So, you know, a little closer to one out of five. So, yeah, so there's, there's something it's not, you know, all that notable advantage. It's just knockout soccer, you know, mm-hmm. random stuff happens, especially now that we've got one offs in MLS. So, yeah, I think, I think the numbers kind of work out about to what you would expect given the somewhat fluky nature that playoffs can have. And Sam, you had a question about refereeing, didn't you? Cause I, we were wondering if, or I don't know if it was Grail, but statistics on refereeing because they take so much heat. Uh, you know, is there anything that you could sort of you know, say, well, he got this. Well, it's tough to say getting right because with VAR, it's sort of like we talked about earlier. It saves their ass a little bit. But um, are there any trends that you can talk about statistically? Yeah, I mean, not much beyond a couple of things we touched on. I do think the did he get it right thing is interesting. I, I'll be interested to see how more leagues and referee organizations use that because you hear about like MLB, you know, they review uh, umpires and stuff and that's mm-hmm. how they help divvy up postseason assignments. Same thing for the NFL. Uh, so, so that's interesting to me because there's a, a new and different sort of way to quantify how accurate a referee is. And there's a, some, but there's so many gray areas from, you know, whether it's the random angle, some guy happened to get in his way, whether it's who is your, the video official maybe that has something to do with it um i don't know that there's going to be uh notable or sizable sample sizes uh, but it is something that i'm interested to see paul yeah i I can't resist when you're on to throw out one potential stat that you'll probably shoot down um there's a lot of talk you know there's always been talk about like the the amount of time that actually the ball is in play uh and i Mm -hmm. feel like that always surprises people when you tell them you know their guests would always be like oh it's in play 80 minutes or something and then it's actually closer to 50 or something yeah uh, but I'm wondering if what's been done on, you know, average stretch of play within the game and how that affects certain teams. My thinking would be, you know, a really good team like Man City could benefit from the ball being in play for, say, two minutes at a time versus a team like Atletico Madrid, which likes to chop things up. Maybe they mm-hmm. want it in play for 40 seconds at a time. Uh, so I'm curious if there's anything behind that. So you're thinking something like it's almost like possession time in the NFL, where if uh, Man City has the ball and it's in play, that kind of wears the defense out. Is that kind of, of what you're thinking? Yeah, I think so. You're, yeah, you're I mean, putting it better than I would. Broadly speaking, yeah, the good teams, games for Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, will have several more minutes of the ball in play than your, we'll just say, bottom of the Premier League teams for you know your teams that take all the time, like to milk the long throw, things like that. Um, so yeah, I think so. I mean, you hear Pep Guardiola talk about how possession is almost defense in the sense that, you know, they just, your guys can rest a little bit while you have the ball and are kicking it around the back. And it wears the other team's defense out because they're reacting instead of acting. They don't know what's coming. So, yeah. So I think there's, there's something to it. And so all those times that Man City, Barcelona, whoever is kicking the ball around the back and, well, it looks like they're doing nothing. They, I think, and coaches have, have said this too, you know, they're a 
just making the defense do something, waiting for a mistake to be made, looking for that hole, looking for that line breaking pass that can be there. But they're also content just to kind of let their guys catch their breath for a minute because so many of these teams also counter press. So, you know, if you can get that few seconds of rest while you're holding on to the ball and kind of shifting uh, up the field, I think that helps them. Once they do lose the ball, they've got that little extra burst of energy to try and impress and get the ball back right away and, and, and go back into their routine. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's something you'll see uh, teams continue to use and, and try to use, and, and the top teams are there right now. Yeah, and if you've been on a field where you're chasing the ball and everybody's yelling, oh, it's the worst. man, it's the worst. So, right. Real, do you want to follow up on yeah, that? Yeah, I was just going to case in point, Paul, a couple of weeks ago when Man City beat Man United 2-0. Mm-hmm. It, it could have, I mean, it actually felt like it was 8-0 because yeah. they so thoroughly dominated possession of the game right. that Man United was never even in the game. Yep. I mean, yeah. it was just, I mean, it, it's exactly your point. They wore them down. Yep. Yeah. And to Kevin's point, I mean, I just, from playing rec leagues, you get so tired of just like you're on the back line and shuffling back and forth and back to the yeah. left and back to the right. And, you know, uh, Alexei Lawless yeah. always talks about how mentally uh, where you have to be as a defender to play this sort of shutdown game. And when you're on, you have to be so turned on for such a high percentage of those 90 minutes. It's just tough. I mean, you're just, you're going to make a mistake. Someone's going to make a mistake when you've got 11 guys trying to defend as a unit. And yeah, I think it, it takes its toll over the course of the game. And I, and I also think Paul on the receiving end of that players are more inclined to make reckless tackles because mm-hmm. in that match Ronaldo should have been kicked yep. out for a challenge yep. because you're chasing all game and you're just much more prone to get frustrated right. and take it out on the opposition. It, it always reminds me of, you know, like when you're a kid, you're playing, we'll say keep away from like your little yeah. brother. And he just gets so frustrated because you're throwing the ball over his head or kicking it around him or whatever it is. And eventually, you know, he just tackles you or kicks you or something <laughs> like that. It's kind of like that just on obviously a much, a much higher scale, yeah. but I think some of that sentiment's still there. And the mentality you talk about when another team has possession like that, it's almost like a power play in hockey. You're just yep. on your on your on your heels the whole time. So speaking of hockey, these are two big hockey guys. I don't know if you are, Paul. You're from hockey country, but uh, yeah. I didn't guys- grow up. I grew up in Kansas City area, and the scouts were long gone by the time I was of age. So not I didn't grow up with hockey. I appreciate it. I just didn't have a team. Um, so whenever the playoffs come around, I'm like, man, I wish I were into this more because it's so much fun. And I've you know, I've been to a bunch of NHL games. And they're great in person. But anyway, yeah, Grail, what was your question? I think that the, you guys had a hockey. Well, yeah, no, it was just, you know, Sam and I talk about the hot goalie, you know, can basically you can ride a hot goalie right through the playoffs. Like yeah. Carey Price last year for the Canadians. And I'm just curious, it, that doesn't really apply as much to soccer, but certainly goal scoring and, and hot scorers like Paolo Rossi and, and Italy's famous uh, World right. Cup win. Is there any is there any data that back, backs it up that it, like a really hot goal scorer can carry a team? Yeah, this, this is a tricky one to quantify. I kind of I looked yeah. at just kind of the historical MLS Cup winners. And it was fairly even between, you know, having a forward with, I just said, three plus goals uh, in the playoff run and having a defense that was playing well. I mean, I would think, you know, it was basically, it was pretty even the percentage of time the MLS cup winner had a, a three plus goal scorer or uh, with, you know, a certain percentage of shutouts or, or a few goals allowed. Um, I, I tend to kind of think the defense is a little more important just mm-hmm. because it's really just kind of simple as, you know, RSL advanced past Seattle because they didn't allow a goal. You know, you don't allow a goal. Your worst case scenario is penalties. Uh, mm-hmm. If you score a goal, that doesn't obviously it increases your chances of winning and advancing, but it's not a guarantee of getting to at least penalties. So I, I still kind of tend to think defense first, 
And mm-hmm. I think, you know, generally speaking, you look at your MLS cup winners and that uh, one way or the other, that tends to be the case, whether it's, you know, a, a 2013 sporting KC team that is built on defense or, you know, a team that, I don't know, Columbus last year that maybe not be, may not be defense first, but, you know, played well during the playoffs. Uh, so I, I tend to think defense is a little more important, but you can, but you have situations of a, Joseph, Joseph Martinez kind of carrying Atlanta a little bit of yeah. some of those high scoring LA Galaxy teams a decade ago who, you know, Keen and such, and Donovan can just kind of carry you as goal scorers. So I don't think there's one size fits all. I, I tend mm-hmm. to think defense is a little bit more important. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff, man. Um, appreciate it, Paul. You're like the Steve Karnacki of over the ball, man. You're like, I need steps. a whiteboard and a touch screen. I'm telling you, be great television. They should put you on air. I know you're working with CBS and Fox now, but this stuff is really interesting. And like I said, I was always averse to sort of listening to some of this stuff, but it really makes sense. Yeah. in our game it, you know? it's it's really it's like anything it's about how you use the data how you present the data um you know something like i like i'll speak to a cbs post game thing you know often we'll put up here are brendan aronson's touches in the game and you can see how many of them are on the left side and in the attacking third and things like that it's easier in the 10 minutes 15 minutes after a game to get that graphic up and get it on tv than it is so i have to cut go through all the highlights and and it's mm-hmm. shorter i can put up a static image and show you his touches, show you his passes, show you whatever I want. Uh, and you can get it in 10 or 15 seconds, whereas it'll take longer just from a time standpoint to cut up all the video. You know, you have to watch something for 30 seconds to see three touches. Uh, so there's ways just of consolidating information. And then it's really just about presenting it well, just like any, almost any industry, you know, any presentation, any meeting, you want to present it kind of succinctly, present it effectively. And that those are the challenges. That's what people are still learning, uh, both on the presentation side and just kind of how to absorb it. People, you got to get used to a little bit having these numbers and graphics and whatever it is available to you. Let's boil it down to a bullion base of statistical knowledge that is presented and we love it. Yep. Uh, Paul, you're the, you're the only guy that talks numbers and I don't glaze over and start to fall asleep like I did in high school. Uh, I, we, I, no, I wear we, that with a badge <laughs> of honor. Good. <laughs> We're so glad to have you on Over the Ball. Paul Carr, Director of Content for True Media Sports and Soccer Researcher for CBS uh, and Fox. There's a little competition there. Go to the highest bidder. Start paying Paul big money. (laughs) Start the bidding wars. Let's go. Be just like the Premier League TV contracts. Good stuff, Paul. All right, man. We'll talk to you again on Over the Ball. Let us know. uh, Well, the numbers will keep growing. The data sources and, and base will keep getting bigger. And we love to talk to you here on Over the Ball. So uh, enjoy your Thanksgiving, my friend. Always good to catch up. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys, too. All right. Great. Always uh, talking to Paul Carr, guys. I mean, it's uh, it's just really interesting stuff. And even you think about it, uh, statistics in soccer, in the soccer world, are somewhat in their, you know, embryonic stage of development. When you think about baseball and all the years of that, Um, you know, it's I, I actually like listening to that stuff. It's really interesting. And the numbers don't lie. They're numbers. They're facts. You know, that it happened. Right. All the passion and emotion that happens in this game. It's like at the end of the day, that's just, yeah, the numbers don't lie. So, um, so it's always good talking to Paul and I, you know, seriously, man, you know, Steve Karnacki during election night is always such a big deal, you know, with his board, his whiteboard and his khakis and his blue Oxford button down. I totally see Paul doing that. Yeah. I would love to hear this stuff in real time. At the end of the game, Paul goes up on his board. So uh, Fox has got all these games. I think, I think you should wind up there. So um all right, so good stuff. So, guys, an interesting thing uh, happened this week. We have a new sponsor, uh, fundraiseforyou.net. 
Ted Priestley, who's a, a frequent guest on the show, he was listening last week and, and heard Sam complain about, or not, Sam, I don't know if you were complaining about not having Paramount Plus, a subscription, but uh, you couldn't watch the games because you, you know, all the streaming services that we have to buy now, which is right in Grail's wheelhouse, explains to us why we have to do this and why they're <laughs> moving in that direction. But um, Ted has offered to sponsor our young Sam Griswold. He's like our child, Grail. I don't know. If, <laughs> I think I'm the child in this group. <laughs> the truth. But uh, what do you think, Sam? How about uh, fundraise for you? So Dr. sponsor, do you mean he's going to pay for Sam's Paramount Plus subscription? He will pay. Fundraise for you.net will pay for wow. Sam's yeah. Paramount Plus subscription every month. Sam, the curmudgeon, the 80-year-old sharecropper. <laughs> will that, will that tip Sam over? <laughs> really? So he can report on these games because he just... It's, what do you think? We're all waiting. Oh, Drum God. roll, please. What say ye, Sam Griswold? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd check it out every once in a while, I guess. <laughs> that's, I mean, That's a resounding... A free subscription. That's a resounding nothing. <laughs> think about checking it out with a free subscription. All right, all right. well... We can, you can add them as one of our sponsors. So, Ted's uh, going to be delighted. Yeah. His money's going to be so well invested. God, you know, yeah. He's begrudgingly watching these great football matches. So, uh, all right, guys. So talk about, you know, we're talking about television. The numbers grail in your business, in your business world, sports media. Uh, it's growing. This it's soccer. And so look at this NBC deal. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, so just very top line. I mean, rights fees just keep going through the roof. So just a, a frame. So NBC just inked a new deal with, um, with the Premier League. It's going to run from 2023 to 28, $2.7 billion. To put that in context, the original deal that ran from two thir- 2013 to 2017 was $250 million. So we're talking like a nine-fold increase. Wow. So Again, as a fan of the Premier League in the broadcast, I'm delighted. It's great commentators, great analysts. It's continuity. Sam, you know, I know Sam has, we we all have an issue about things bouncing around all the time and like which network has it this year and who are the commentators. For me, as a fan of the league, I love it because I know where I'm going and I know who's going to be commentating. Let me ask you this, Graham. Put this in context with other sports. I'm sure that the rights fees are going up in NFL and NBA and MLB. They're going up, yeah. But so the are recent they up, and, are, they, yeah, are they going up as much as they have because they're not going up ninefold? I would no, they're they're going up. Well, the the recent NFL deal was a ten billion dollar deal that was across all the platforms. So the NFL put aside the NFL is unlike anything else, but they are all going up and and uh, you know in terms of MLS and we'll get to their ratings. The fact that their ratings have all been up in 2021 certainly bodes well for them to impact their deal that's about to expire. Now, whether or not they go up, uh, you know, the way that the premier league has with the ratings have been great over here. Advertising has been great. All of it's been good for NBC and all of it's been good for the premier league. So, and and then Fox has gotten in in a big way. We talked about that last week as well. Um, You know, CBS, CBS sports is really the one that, that is it'll be interesting if cbs sports goes after mls because obviously you've got abc espn you've got the and espn2 is the current deal who else jumps into the the mix is it cbs sports is it an outlier is it somebody like amazon i mean is it somebody else so it'll it'll be interesting yeah. obviously mls is going to look to get the biggest monetary deal possible so we'll have to wait and see well if it goes to amazon uh, sam do you have amazon 
not not amazon prime so ted will have to fork out for that too yeah does uh, ted know he's ted. on the hook for like another 120 on top all of the these, 60 <laughs> streaming sir oh ted we thought you meant every streaming service yeah, exactly that's a you know five grand a month so uh so what's that what the deal with mls you think um the the viewership is up right yeah so their viewers are up you know significantly significantly across you know univision and unimas they're up about 14 percent versus last year the a abc espn espn2 up 18 percent fox isn't up as much that's interesting fox is only up four percent and i'm wondering if they maybe didn't have as good matchups or as good time slots or something about them they're up but they're just not up up, up as much so I just think it bodes really well for MLS. You know, they're going into this new new negotiation. It's probably going to be a new eight-year deal. And um, their current deal is at 90 million annually. Okay, so that gives you a frame of reference. They're at 90 million annually. You know, I could easily see them going up to somewhere between 150 and 200 million. I mean, annually, that wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. And you don't think it'll be a ESPN either because they seem to be getting out of the soccer business. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, well, my inclination says it'll stay. I mean, you'll have probably the same partners. That's my inclination is the ESPN, ABC, they'll step up and do the deal. Um, but again, CBS Sports, you know, they're like, they've decided to double, triple, quadruple down on soccer. If they could sweep in and do this, they could really have a foothold in soccer across a lot of different leagues. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, but if I were Don Garber, I'd be feeling very good given the ratings. Um, yeah, good stuff. Well, I mean, this is all good news for soccer people. Yeah. Mm, well, I, yeah, Sam, what are your I'm, thoughts? I'm about not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure this is great news for all soccer people. Um, this, I mean, it's great for NBC and clearly for the premier league who have managed to come up with a product that is, I would say unrivaled around the world, probably. But uh, I, I, my initial reaction is that this is just going to continue to exacerbate, you know, the difference between the leagues across Europe, basically, you know, from the Premier League to the Continental Leagues. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, this is why we had the push for the Super League is because the Continental teams were getting worried about the Premier League essentially becoming a Super League of its own. Um, and you can see that because the team's still worried and fighting and who don't think the Super League idea is dead are Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, who you know are three of those teams destined to sort of be left in these backwater leagues. So right. I, I, I don't I mean, they I think we arrive at a very you know uncomfortable conclusion, which is, you know, if you're not for the Super League, which I feel like most people aren't, you know, the best yeah. way you can combat that is not to watch and follow the Premier League. Um, but, you know, I'm not claiming that I'm doing that and I'm some like great righteous person. I'm, I don't watch the Premier League because I just am not interested in it. But, um, you know, it's just business and whatever. But I, I don't know. I think it's leading us towards territory that people might not be that thrilled with. Yeah, Sam, you know, there, I, I get what you're saying about the Super League. But I one one thing that I think really works in the favor of it not happening is I don't think those clubs had any idea what the fan reaction was going to be to that. I think they were absolutely caught flat-footed about the outrage. Now, you may have Barca and Real Madrid and the Juve trying to do their own thing, but honestly, they can't do their with three with just three of them. They can't there is no Super League. And I just think the other clubs like Liverpool and stuff were basically like smacked back by their mm -hmm. fans who just said, "No, 
No, that's not what we want. So, I mean, I, I understand yeah. what you're saying. I'm just not as concerned about, I'm not saying at some point down the road, 10 years from now, the Super League couldn't resurface again. I just don't think in the near term, it's it's an issue. No, I, I think most likely, the most likely outcome is that it'll come back in some form and probably be a continental league to try and yeah. rival the Premier League. Right. And, you know, we were talking about two things, basically. So once I was talking about just basically, it seems like, the dust is starting to settle on who will, who, you know, what network will be watching over the next few years. So I was saying that's good for soccer fans, but I think to your bigger question, I think you're right. And I think Sam's basically saying, Grail, follow the money. And when you follow the money, this is not going to go away because Real Madrid, Barcelona will not go quietly. You know, they were the it teams for a long time there, but um, it did get smacked back so hard that I think it did give them pause, but, to your point, Sam, I don't think they'll give up, you know, because there's too much money and too much prestige involved. Well, they're also financially desperate. The clubs that you mentioned all just need the Super League desperately. So, I mean, not that the other clubs couldn't benefit financially, but again, it, you can't do it with three teams. So you would have to have all those other teams who went through public humiliation reverse course. And again, I'm not saying it's not possible down the road, but um I just think in the near term, they were not in any way prepared for what the reaction was going to be. All right. So uh, really quick, Premier League, it looks like Gunner's gone at Manchester United. Uh, real shit show over there. Michael Carrick would be the caretaker. Um, we all saw this coming, right? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just been it, it's just been a, a, a train that's been off the track since Sir Alex Ferguson left and they just haven't gotten it right with the manager. And it just shows you in my book how important the manager is. I mean. They, you know, they tried Moyes, they tried Van Hal, they tried Mourinho, they tried, you know, they've tried Ole Gunnar Sasha. None, none of it's worked. And now, and they missed out on Conte because they dithered with Ole. They could have had Conte who ended up going to Spurs. So anyway, it's, it's just a classic example of a great club that's been really poorly managed. I guess, you know, it's like, but you've, you've had some brain trust in there and it just hasn't worked for them. So it's uh, too bad. Um, one surprise, it's uh, Bob Bradley sacked at LAFC after four years, failed to make the playoffs in 2021. Um, you know, I guess that big year was 2019 was a highlight, winning the Supporters' Shield and then a record 72 points and scoring a record 85 goals. I mean, I don't know. Uh, they also traded Zimmerman, Walker Zimmerman, who's been, the, you know, the man of the match in the national team games. So uh, I've always yeah, told well, Bob Bradley, he always seems to survive and go to a new place. And also, guys, I think this speaks to something even bigger. It seems like coaches have a shelf life of sure. three years where you come in, you get to motivate the players at first, then you get to bring in your own players, then you try to build a cohesive unit, and then you have to win. And if you don't, at the, at the end of three, four years, even with somewhat some success, you're you're gone. Yeah, and I just think sports franchises are a lot like, you know, corporations, you know, regardless of sometimes how well you do, if a new owner comes in or a new person in charge, they just may not like Sam Griswold or Kevin Flynn for no good reason and want to bring in their own person. And you're left. I mean, that wasn't really Bradley's case, but I'm just saying there's a lot of that going on with new owners coming into places and just saying, oh, you're not my guy. And they just, so they just dumped the person. Sam, I don't know if we talked about this last week, but how do you think Conte is going to do? Uh, we did mention this a little bit. I, I think he'll do fine. I think it might take a minute for him to get the measure of everything, but uh, I mean, his track record, speaks for itself he's won everywhere he's been with uh you know kind of different teams i mean he manages to 
to shake things up and bring in new people to kind of fit his mold. But uh, what is know, that kind of a defense first sort of coach? Yeah. I mean, it's very structured. It's very organized at the back. It's usually with a back three and wing backs. Uh, it's mostly counterattacking, I would say. Um, a lot of playing off a target man up front, whether that's Lukaku or Graziano Pele for the Italian national team before that. Uh, very, very quick counterattacks, quick strikes, not always having all of the ball and just really, really stifling defensively. It's not always the most entertaining to watch, but incredibly effective. Then it's kind of a classic Italian style. Yeah, I guess you could say so. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like it really, it was at its finest when he was coaching Italy at the Euro in that that was the worst team that he has coached and he got a lot out of them. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think that's Sam, I, th I thought of you when I was watching that Spurs Leeds game where they came back and won and Conte was running up and down the touchlines and just whipping the crowd into a frenzy. And I thought, you know, that... I mean, you still have to have the tactical acumen and all that, but that alone has an impact on the fans. Yeah, he's saying the, the players and the coaches are doing their part. Now as fans, you do your part and yeah. support guys, you know. Um, you know, a lot of these teams turn on your players really quick and it's it all goes south. So uh Hey Sam, how about Shevchenko at Genoa? Is that does that is that meaningful in any way or um, so, so we should just mention Andrei yeah. Shevchenko was appointed manager at Genoa and Serie A, who are currently in 18th place. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a move. They've just been bought by an American investment firm, something called 777 Partners, whatever the hell that is. Uh, I think it's a, you know, it's a way to get some instant brand recognition, right? I mean, they can't do that. No player of any sort of recognition is going to want to come join a team that's fighting for relegation in Serie A. Uh, so it's a chance for them to, you know, put a face to the team right away. I mean, I, I don't know. I hope he does well. I like him a lot as, yeah. as a, I loved him as a player and he seems like a good guy all around. Um, to me, it also speaks to the fact that again, you know, everybody, everybody in the team now, if you want to be like modern and progressive has to be like some kind of a celebrity, you know, even the coach. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see yeah, how it goes. It I mean, they, they, have a lot of issues Genoa and uh they could easily get you know relegated this season so I think it's also interesting Sam that uh you know he went from Ukraine national team to coach a club team which I think says something about the allure of you know just coaching a club team yeah 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 just more involvement I guess all right well good stuff guys uh what do we got for Thanksgiving plans family friends grail all the above all the above Yes, got the boys home and uh, mm -hmm. Turkey. Sam, you go in uh, the Mars's Vineyard. Hey, you know what I was going to actually mention? You know, you're talking about this, these uh, companies that buy these teams, and we talked about it earlier in the broadcast with Paul Carr too about, you know, the passion's not there sometimes. It's it's a business deal, and I think that's what irks yeah. us. Um, you know, Sam on the Vineyard in Nantucket, these LLCs are buying all these homes and renting them out, so it's not even an individual, mm -hmm. and I think they. They take the six year, amortize the losses across the course of, you know, all that stuff that all the tax games and things they play. And so I think it's a bummer in a way sometimes when these when these sort of hedge funds buy a team. So there's no it's all, you know, to go back to Paul Carr's point, it's all sheer numbers, you know, mm -hmm. data, not not uh, not passion of the game. And I think that's that's what's lost sometimes, you know, so we'll see what happens. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm worried, Sam, about your when you were talking about Wrexham and Ryan Reynolds. I worry about it them kind of making a mockery of the whole thing, which really would be too bad because that shouldn't be the point. Well, yeah. make it an always sunny in Philadelphia type of episode, yes. But uh, you know, that's the other guy, I think. So I think that was Sam. That was a question for you, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I'm not going to speak for any Wrexham fans, but I certainly wouldn't be happy if it was the team I cared about. Yeah. Wrecked them, damn near killed them. Um, <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for, uh, for joining me this morning on Over the Ball. We'd like to thank our, our guest, Paul Carr, the, uh, the numbers man. Uh, he does it uh, for uh, CBS and Fox with soccer, but uh, always talking some number sense to us here on Over the Ball. Uh, guys, have a great Thanksgiving with your families. Uh, watch some soccer. I'll be watching Liverpool today as we're recording this on a... Uh, on Sam a- will be watching Paramount Plus. And uh, yes, soon to be watching <laughs> Paramount Plus uh, with Ted Priestley. And, um, well, on Amazon too, apparently. <laughs> everything. You're going to have to have 20 uh, services. Ted doesn't know that Sam's going to cost him about $50,000 a year. Fundraiseforyou.net is sponsoring Paramount Plus for Sam Griswold. All right, everybody. For Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn. Uh, We'll talk to you next time on Over the Ball. Have a great holiday, everybody.